Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us, or good evening, if you happen to be in the UK watching Janice Hallett talk to me about her second novel. The, is it Twyford or Twyford? I never even thought to ask you. It is Twyford. I never trust any British pronunciation. <laughs> it's, it's often so tricky. I mean, Shumley, for example, or Worcestershire, or... <laughs> Or yeah, right. There's so many that you can even even family names and family places like Beaver Castle, for example, or Bewley, you know. Right. Anyway, Twyford. So right. So Janice, if you recall from the appeal, her um first book and giant number one bestseller, which we discussed with her last January. And let me say that the uh, American publisher is roughly a year behind the British publisher. So Janice has a new book out in January. Well, this month, is it, Janice? Yeah, that's just come out. The Alberton Angels uh, came out last Thursday and this Twyford Code uh, came out yesterday in, right. in America. Right, so the Alberton Angels, we actually have some autographed copies coming our way, but um, I can't really talk to Janice about it because I haven't seen it, haven't read it. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to discuss it with her next year when it appears here. And it's interesting, I mean, you know, sometimes the gap between the British and the U.S. editions is fairly small. And sometimes, as in this case, it's an entire year. So there's no logic to it. Um, I can't, you know, for those of you who want to know in outrage why we have to do it this way, it's not our fault. <laughs> anyway, um, and the appeal, by the way, is just out in paperback this month and um, doing really well. And we have copies at the bookstore. So if you missed it, you could start with the appeal. The books are completely different. So there's no reason to read the appeal, you know, first from the Twyford Code. But in the appeal, Janice adopted an unusual narrative structure. So why don't you fill us in on that? And then we can talk about the interesting structure of the Twyford Code. Indeed, well, the appeal was told mainly through text messages and emails between members of a drama group. So that's, um, it, it makes for quite a, a very personal read because you're reading from the point of view of all the characters. So you're reading from the point of view of the victim and uh, the murderer as well, as well as everybody around them. So yeah, it's, it, it was quite different when it, it hit the shelves, uh, well, last year in America. and. Um, yeah, and I mean, it's done really well, so. Uh, well, yeah, it has. Here's the thing. The epistolary form is actually the form that the first novel published in English, Pamela by Samuel Richardson adopted. And here's what it allows you to do. It allows you to have multiple narrators. They can all speak in first person. It gives you a plot progression because it's all sequential. Um, and as Janice says, it allows voices of a character that's often hidden, only you don't know he's the, you know, which one's the murderer. But I love it that, you know, what we're doing is taking modern technology and reverting to the, you know, the oldest novel form. Because really the novel's um, essentially an 18th century um, construct. Books before then tended to be religious or nonfiction or, you know, diaries poetry. or whatever it was. Yeah. Poetry and religious um, yeah. texts as well, yeah. Right. But I love the fact that you, you know, you took the epistolary form, which solves an awful lot of storytelling issues, such as having multiple characters with different voices, all able to speak in the book. Um, it's also a really, oh, I don't want to blow it. Anyway, 
it's a there's a series of unreliable narrators in the book, despite the fact they are talking to you in that intimate way. Um, and so it's a novel that truly will surprise most readers in the way that the story eventually plays out. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. I kind of knew what you were doing, but I didn't know how you were doing it to me. So oh, that was good. fun. Yeah, <laughs> no, the, the reveal was great. You know, it was lovely. So what is the structure you've now adopted? Are you now thinking that you are going to have to use some sort of unusual narrative structure in your in your novels? Well, I know I'm uh, I'm not done with it yet because um, the Twyford Code is also told in the uh, a quite uh, different way, and only it's different from the appeal as well. It's it's totally um, totally different. It's told from the point of view of one man. He's called Steve uh, Smithy, Steve Smith, and he's just been released from prison. Now he's only just learned how to read, so and he can't write, still can't write. So the only way he can record his thoughts and feelings. Um, about what he's doing, which we'll come on to a bit later. Um, the only way he can record that is to record his voice, uh, which he does on his phone. And what we're reading is an automatic transcription of those audio files that he created, 200 audio files. And um, we know that that phone has been found and that Smithy himself is missing. So we have to read these audio files to find out what might have happened to him. It's really fascinating, you know, it's basically, we don't know if it's the voice from the dead or the voice from the missing, but um, but I really like it. Actually, his son, I think, didn't his son give him an old iPhone? Is that what he's recording on? His son gave him the old iPhone, his estranged son, and his probation officer suggested that he do this because uh, Smithy, he, well, he's just released from prison, but he's also looking back on his life. He wants to go straight and in an effort to find out where he went wrong in his life. He goes right back to uh, a moment of trauma in his early teenage years when he was 14, because he went on a school trip one day with his remedial English class and his uh, beloved teacher, Miss Isles, disappeared while they were on that trip. She never came back for them. And he's, he can't remember this entirely as is, the, as is often the case with childhood trauma. So he, he wants to go back and put this episode to rest once and for all. And to do that, he goes back and speaks to his old school friends to find out what they remember about this particular episode and what they remember, you know, their last memories of Miss Isles before she went. And he very quickly discovers that, that Miss Isles was up to something before she disappeared. She'd um, come up with this theory that a much maligned children's author called Edith Twyford had hidden uh, complex codes in her children's books and she was writing in the 1940s and uh, these codes had some relevance to what was happening in Europe in the 1940s and Smithy thinks that she might have stumbled upon something that led to her disappearance so as well as trying to find out what happened to Miss Isles he's also trying to decipher the Twyford code as well and his audio files are all about this so uh, yeah, he's. That's probably about all I can say at the moment without giving anything away. But it's uh, you know it's a thrilling adventure and a crime mystery. You know, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of stories wrapped up in this story, and I had a, I had a lot of fun writing it. And I hope you know hope readers have a lot of fun reading it too. Well, I think only an author of your experience, even though this is your second novel, I haven't mentioned Janice's 
uh, credentials, but I can certainly do that now by looking them up in the back of my advanced reading copy because I haven't memorized <laughs> them. But it, I should tell you that this is what publishers send to you. This is a paper bound uh, and it has on the back of it, it has um, quotes from other authors. It might have a review inside and usually has a helpful biography of the author, some of which makes it into the printed book, the final book, and some of it actually doesn't. But anyway, Janice studied English at University College in London, spent several years as a magazine editor, winning two awards for journalism, worked in government communications for the Cabinet Home Office and Department for International Development, getting an MA in screenwriting. I'm not sure why that is a logical progression in your career. But maybe really you know. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe if you worked in government, moving on to writing fiction is sort of an <laughs> Anyway, she co-wrote the feature film retreat and went on to write a Shakespearean stage comedy called Netherbird. Um, and as I said, the appeal was a Sunday Times bestseller. But I, I think that it took, you know, for you to do anything this sophisticated as a first novelist, obviously you'd had plenty of practice writing because it would have been, I think, beyond the range of most people to just fly into something like this. Yeah, I think screenwriting, I did that for a long time and worked on lots of different sorts of uh, screenplays for film and TV. And that was a good training ground. And so I hit the ground running when I started writing a novel. I, I was really well versed in the um, conventions of storytelling and, and how stories are told and how, how you can play around with storytelling. So yeah, I, I did hit the ground running with that. Um, it's, it's maybe a little bit deceptive to say that was my first novel. It, you know, as a very experienced writer, when I, when I started it. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, screenwriting would have taught you to write um, many voices, you know, screen. I mean, you don't have a, a single narrator standing there in the movie or on stage or whatever. Um, in fact, that's a hard thing for a lot of novelists is to reduce a novel to, in fact, dialogue. Um, but you've obviously come at it kind of the other way where you were more used to writing dialogue and then you had to fill in all that stuff that is part of a book. Yeah, and you know, when you go the other way, you have to add stuff, because now I'm looking at a lot of my screenwriting ideas that I really wanted to get out there, but couldn't get out there on screen. And I'm looking to turn them into novels. And you have to add more material because a novel is a, is a hungrier format for story. You need more stories, more subplots, more characters than you need on the screen. So yeah, when you, when you see your favorite book and they you know, butchered that lovely story that you loved and it's only part of it, uh, there's a reason for that. It's completely different language, uh, the, the visual language compared to the literary language. And uh, they're, they're both different uh, ways of telling a story, but they're, they're both good. They're both lovely. And I um, enjoyed working in both. And, well, uh, they are very different. Um, and actually, movies had to compress a novel into a relatively tight time frame. The gift to, to turning novels into film has been the long form um, you know, television adaptations, because then you have room to really explore the material in a book that you never had with doing a movie. Um, I think, I mean, a, a good example would be one of Lee Child's books, for example, when it was a Tom Cruise movie, it was, you know, fairly compressed. And when they did the first Reacher Killing Floor for television, it was, what, eight episodes or something. So, you know, it it all kind of goes that that way for some reason I've been talking a lot lately to people who wrote for television of the movies and then decided that um writing novels was 
uh, intriguing. And most of them say more fun because you get to do it by yourself and have total control. Whereas if you're doing screenwriting or, you know, whatever it is, it's a collaborative thing. You're in a writer's room and then you've got to deal with the director and the producer and then you have actors and, you know, so what comes out at the end may not actually be what you what you wrote. But it's it's yeah, but the good news is that, you know, for screenwriting, you have, you know, the visuals and you have the actor speaking and all. And so, as you say, it's um, you don't have to have as much as you do when you I love the way you just described writing a book. What did you say was hungrier? Hungrier. Yeah, it's a hungry for hungry for story. Yeah, yeah. For sure. I really <laughs> love that because you have to fill in all that stuff that, you know, the actors and the sets and all did for you. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about, you know, Smithy's background, because you're you're a Londoner, right? I am. So you not only could have researched, but you've probably lived through um, a lot of the the reign of the big crime families in London. <laughs> Although you're not you're not as old as I am, so you wouldn't have been right there post war. But you know, were, did they come to prominence? People like the Cray family and other families, um, as a consequence, really, of uh, the black market during the war and shortages and all exactly. that. And that's exactly where they came from because they were we had a lot of shortages um, in the post-war era here so people who could get hold of um, items that were in short supply could make money and that's where these families um, gained their territories and um, as Smithy says at the beginning that what they he started off selling for this family was quite different to what they ended up selling which was drugs mm -hmm. um, because at that particular time there was a, a demand for items, luxury items, rather than drugs and substances. Um, so yeah, there was his, his membership of a gang spans two eras, because gangs are quite different now. And he's based very much on the boys I knew at school who took the wrong path, who got in with the wrong crowd, and what happened to them. And you know, we have a lot of gang uh, crime here in London now, but the gangs are so different and very deadly. And partly seeing that is, uh, you know, inspired me to think back to those boys that I knew who certainly got in with the wrong crowd, but they never killed anyone and they never died themselves. So, you know, it's quite a, it's quite a sad background to, uh, to the book, but, you know, it's very real. I think all uh, fiction comes out of reality and the reality around us. And uh, that's, that's true of this book too. Well, it seemed to me that those gangs were really more like, you know, difficult business corporations rather than criminal well they were criminals but they were actually their goal was to make money um yes, there's a very the fine line between criminal organizations and actual organizations because they both have to um well do the same thing they have to manage people they have to keep people loyal um they have to stop people who've worked for them leaving and starting up rival gangs or companies so they're very very similar in essence very much so. And, you know, corruption. I mean, we just saw that, what is it, Zelensky had to bounce a few people, you know, in his government in the Ukraine. So corruption seems to be, and there were opportunities. So the other thing I love today is there are so many more opportunities through social media for people to do dumb stuff and expose themselves. I love the fact that your prime minister put up, I don't remember, Instagram or TikTok video or something and revealed he wasn't wearing a seatbelt. So he's now been ticketed for, you know, violating the safety code or whatever. And I thought, 
you know, come on, you know, did he realize if he were in a moving car and he clearly wasn't, you know, felt it in that somebody might notice when it went public? I love it, you know, that people can do some most amazing things. Right. Well, we see that every day here. Anyway, um, so was it was it uh, often true that that young boys in you know poor districts and so forth with probably schools that were underfunded often didn't learn to read, or did Smithy have um, a problem like um, dyslexia? Why why was he not reading? He was certainly told he had dyslexia. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was researching um, into literacy in the process of researching this novel, and I discovered that 50% of UK prisoners either can't read or struggle with reading and writing. And that was staggering. I, I, I kind of assumed it would be fairly high, but half, uh, no, not at all. Um, so that was a shock. And I can't believe there's not a connection between these people who can't read or write, who can't have that interface with the world uh, that we need to get by and who end up in prison because they've had to you know, make money a different way, an illegal way. Um, so yeah, that was something that I wanted to explore quite thoroughly with Smithy. Um, because when you think that what reading gives us, I mean, not even just the practical things of life, the, the forms we have to fill in just to you know, be a member of society, but the, the stories that reading gives us access to and the horizons, you know, the, our horizons broaden when we read. So if you don't have that, if you can't have that, you're very vulnerable. And that's what Smithy comes to discover. I mean, he accepts the bad choices he made, but he also comes to recognize where choice was taken away from him. And he ended up with this gang who looked after him in his illiterate state. And he gain status and money and other things being a member of them. But they also kept him um, in thrall to them. And he was trapped as he, he only really realizes that now in his fifties, having served a long time in prison for them. Um, well, so yeah. Gangs didn't have scholarship programs or whatever for rising stars. How young, how young did they recruit children? Oh, early teens, you know, as soon as, you know, they're old enough to do some running around and, you know, young enough for the police not to worry them too much, but old enough to, you know, be out later at night and be running around the streets delivering. And that's what they start doing, running, um, delivering drugs, collecting money, delivering things, um, being foot soldiers, first of all, while their loyalty is tested and, and, and they're controlled. Basically, it's a kind of control. Well, it's very, it's very Dickensian, isn't it? Proving that, you know, over a century later, Dickens was right on Oliver Twist, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, no, I can, I can certainly see that. One of the other interests that you explore, express, there's a very good um, acknowledgement in the back of the book, which I urge you not to read till you've actually read the book because it's got spoilers in it. Um, is that you talk about London speech patterns. And I think any of us Americans who read British mystery have had to learn not only fairly straightforward transfers like, you know, sweater to jumper and, you know, that sort of thing, trunk to boot. Um, but, um, you know, there, there are so many different dialects. Um, yeah. And London is almost, a, has its own. I mean, you know, you can think about Yorkshire, or you can think about 
you know, Dorset or Somerset and people having dialects there, but within London, just Metro London, aren't there all kinds of, you know, language sort of subgroups? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm a West Londoner. And for the most part, I can tell whether someone is from South East or North London, um, mostly. Um, and London accents are changing. Um, Smithy speaks in a particular accent that's very similar to mine because we're, we're the same age. Um, but young people now speak with a completely different accent that um, reflects the cultural influences that they've had. And my accent is different to my you know, grandparents' accent, who um, grew up in the First World War. It's completely different. And the codes, the slang that they use is, is very specific and specific to Smithy. And I, I quite, one thing that I realised once I'd written the book is that I'd recorded this particular way of speaking that is moving out of sort of living memory or it gradually will. And I felt quite proud that I'd recorded it in this particular book because um, he uses a lot of shortcuts, uh, does Smithy, which is picked up um, with varying success by the uh, automatic transcription software. So you'll be reading some strange things before you um, get into the flow of how this software interprets what he says. But Smithy um, uses Cockney rhyming slang in such a way that even if you know Cockney rhyming slang, uh, you might not know immediately what he's saying. And um, to describe to his probation officer what he means, he, he will often describe uh, what he means by the slang because he's aware that other people don't get what he's saying now, uh, particularly young people. Um, so yeah, he's uh, by the end of this book, you, you've read codes that you haven't really realised because Smithy speaks in a particular code. And that's what that's what Cockney rhyming slang is. That's where it grew up from. Um, market traders in the East End would speak to each other without their potential customers knowing what they were saying, because potentially they were going to be ripped off. Uh, so the um, the merchants would use this slang. And, um, you know, this is this is what Smithy uses now. And, uh, you know, it's, go it's going out of, of practice. My husband still makes the odd um, reference to Cockney rhyming slang. He's a Londoner as well. Uh, but mostly, you know, people don't use it now. Well, I know there are a couple of key words, um, and there's even a translation of one that involves color and something into into something else. But in order to to do a code, you have to have markers and you have to have other stuff. And it turns out that some of this slang is, you know, crucial to that. I've never been able to entirely understand or even vaguely understand Cockney rhyming slam. And I just read a book. Do you know the author Cynthia Herod Eagles? Have you ever run into Cynthia? I haven't, no. Well, you should look her up because she has written a maybe 30-some books by now. There are police investigations about Bill Slider and his team, and they're kind of over in the West End. But um, this last book that I read, you really have to be an experienced British language reader for America to even figure out what they're talking about. And I don't know if it's so much slang as just you know, different names, different terms. Um, you know, even watching the last Doc Martin last night, which I couldn't resist doing, you know, he always says, go through or come through. You know, I mean, Americans would say, come in or, you know, whatever. And, you know, you kind of get used to phrases like that. Those aren't slang. They're just um, a more, you know, come to mind. Americans would never say that. You know, we would always say, let's meet at my house. 
Whereas if you're British, you most often would say, let's see it together at mine. And then Americans are waiting for the for the noun, you know, the mine, <laughs> mine what, you know, but it doesn't happen. Um, so I, I do think that your book in many ways is, is less testing than Cynthia's. Um, but, you know, if you're interested in language, you really, I'll send you an, an, an email with a couple of her titles. I mean, I think she's a wonderful writer, but I think the language would really fascinate you. Brilliant. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah. Great. Well, that'll be good. So we've got Little Smithy with his roots in a bygone area of London's criminal history with a story that resounds today wherever poverty and addiction have a catastrophic impact on children and families of their communities. If only there were as many happy endings as there are young people, is what Janice writes here in the afterward. But let's talk about, um, you know, Edith Twyford, because did you reference, I remember Val McDermott years ago, we were at Oxford and in a conference, we were talking about books that we had loved when we were young, and she introduced the chalet school girl. I know, and I, none of us had ever heard, you know, the Americans anyway, we had no idea. Um, and then the famous five, you know, the Enid Blyton are not nearly so well known. We had Nancy Drew and the Motor Girls and, you know, different kinds of groups. So um, what was Miss Twyford writing? Well, she is, uh, Edith Twyford is based on or inspired by anyway, Enid Blyton, uh, oh, for the, sure. The, the, the yeah. famous five? Yeah, absolutely. I um, mean, it's just a, a children's author who's fallen out of favor because he's just you know, old fashioned um, to the modern reader. And, and this was a case even when I was a child in the 70s, because I we had no books in the house. So to get books, I would uh, pick them up at the local jumble sale uh, when my mum helped out with the you know local scout group and they'd have jumble sales. I People were throwing out their Enid Blytons. Um, they were too old fashioned and people didn't want them anymore. I would get, get stacks of them, really lovely sort of old hardbacks that you see now, you know, for quite a, a high price in secondhand yes. shops. And uh, yeah, I was read those voraciously cover to cover. And, uh, you know, I, I admit that some of her prose is very simple and too simple, but there's something about Blyton's rhythm and something about the way she tells her stories and particularly the mystery stories that really captures you. It, it's almost hypnotic. And um, as a lesson in storytelling, and certainly as a background for, a young reader, it really is something you know that that's served me well, and I, I'm convinced I wouldn't be a writer now if I hadn't read those books with that particular rhythm when I was at a very young and impressionable age. And so I've got lots to uh, thank her for, and I hope Edith Twyford is uh, something of a you know, tribute to her. So they were they were not Nancy Drew are almost all investigations of some sort of criminal activity but were the famous five just having adventures the famous five were slightly younger I did read a couple of Nancy Drews and I think that they were teenagers weren't they got older teenagers yeah, yeah uh, whereas the famous five were around the sort of 11 12 10 to 12 maybe age group so they're from slightly younger readership um, and yeah there are loads of mysteries I mean there were 16 I think of them quite a few and um yeah they were, they were just you knew that the famous five would solve it at the end. You know, you knew that this uh, this terrible problem would come right in the end. And that the interaction between those characters and the relationships between them was also a factor as they were solving 
um, the the mystery. So uh, yeah, no, the the famous fives. Um, I don't they, do they stand up today? I'm not sure. They'd have a much younger readership than Blyton would um, intend. I think that we read them now at seven or eight if you read them at all, uh, whereas Blyton would consider them to be a young teenage um, readers. Mm. You know, I hadn't thought about it, but that's an interesting question. If you're going to write about a group of children who are basically on the loose, um, problem problem solving, you know, theoretically without their parents supervising them and all, what age can you pick where they are just old enough to get away from, you know, their parents being there the entire time, helicopter parents, and, you know, being young enough to, I mean, I, I hadn't thought about that, but maybe, you know, that that probably has a lot to do with what age group you write for if you have to pick your sleuths to be believable. Yeah, yeah and Bly Blyton wrote for some very, very young children. And uh, early in her career, she, she was a teacher of young children. Uh, and she was she pioneered um, some, this is in the 1930s, some quite some forward thinking um, you know, aspects of education, co-education, for example, if you've ever read Enid Blyton's The Naughtiest Girl in the School um, series, I think there's three or four books in that one, that is aimed at slightly younger children, but it presents a, a boys and girls being educated together, which in the 1930s just didn't happen. And that was, a, that was where she was forward thinking earlier mm -hmm. in her career. And of course, later in her career, she was very much maligned, even while she was still working, as, as not being um, someone for the modern age, not being a, a good writer for children to read. Um, but no, she she started off being quite um, a rebel, I suppose. Well, I was talking Monday to an author of a new book called The Mitford Affair, which basically is looking at the Mitford, you know, the six daughters, the son is kind of peripheral, the Kardashians of their day in many ways. But one of the things that we talked about was that they, you know, weren't well-educated at all. They didn't, you know, they kind of were feral children running around in a country estate. It's amazing that two of them turned into novelists. Um, you know, one of them became a duchess, you know, so they must have learned along the way, but they didn't have the kind of um, formal schooling, at least when they were young, that we might have expected. So, you know, I think sometimes we forget that people could be well-educated without actually going to school. Thomas Jefferson's an example. He was a self-educated. Abraham Lincoln, you know, um, the same, became a, a lawyer in the whole bit without formal schooling. We don't really even imagine that anymore, do we? Well, what is education, I suppose? And this is, um, this is where S Smithy has something to say, really, because his education came through life through that very early experience with the gang. And, and he says very early on, um, I can't read or write, but I'm very articulate, he said, because I listen. And when I've heard a word, I can use it myself as many times as I like. And, and that's the thing, isn't it? If you're open, if your mind is open, you will learn from your environment, regardless of whether you've been, you're being taught or not. You can sit in a classroom and not learn a thing if you're not listening and not open or receptive to that lesson. But in life, you can stay open-minded and stay outward-looking and outward-thinking about the world. 
It's also true that if you only read words and you never hear them pronounced, you can go astray. I'm always surprised. <laughs> yeah, you know, once in a while I hear somebody say a word and I thought, that's not the way I say it. I recognize that I probably never heard anybody actually use it in conversation. And then it, oh, exactly. I, I yeah. do that. So there's some words I hesitate to, to use because I don't know how they're, they're spoken. I've only ever read them. Yeah, and then as a result, sometimes you can confuse them, you know, and get the wrong meaning because you're using the wrong word or whatever it is. Patrick and I have learned, and Jacob will too, that when we're doing these conversations, it's really wise to ask the author how to pronounce his or her name before we start because we've had a few moments. And nobody wants to embarrass you by correcting you, but on the other hand, you know you really want your name to be your name. So anyway, Twyford turns out to be actual places, doesn't it? It isn't just Miss Twyford. But um, and, and so are they really village names in the, in Britain? There's lots of places called Twyford. Yeah, it means I did look it up. And can I remember now what it means? It's something like um, twi a, a meeting of rivers. I think it's like two rivers, two Oh, fords. like Twin Ford? Like yeah, so a lot of, I think it's ang probably Anglo-Saxon because most of these places are in the south east of England. And um, yeah, it's so a lot of places will be called that a meeting of two rivers. Um, so yeah, Twyford, uh, it's also a surname uh, as well. And, uh, right, yeah. well, her surname. Um, I didn't realize that people would have a tr trouble pronouncing it. I thought it would be quite easy, but a lot of even, you know, English people have called it Twyford. So it's, it's not even an American thing. Well, why is one of those vowels that, you know, you can give it different pronunciations. So, I mean, I guess, I guess all vowels, really, if you study French, you find out that, you know, you have to be really careful with your vowels. So it would be true here. But anyway, it's useful for um, our author, Ms. Twyford, to also have a name that denotes a physical place. And slight spoiler, you do have to pay attention to when she wrote her books, you know, in the era um because that has something to do with maybe whether or not she employed deployed a code in her books um did she and if so why would miss isles have figured it out put herself in danger if in fact she did and then we have smithy um so you know it's a story that actually has a long backstory doesn't it very much so and it's inspired by an awful lot um that's not behind it uh, as well. I think it's a book about books, really, because Smithy's having only just learned how to read. He's discovering some of those books that we all read when we were in our early teens, when we first learned how to read a book cover to cover. Things like Animal Farm, Lord of the Flies, things that are quite simple, but, you know, good, resonant books to read. And he's just discovering that. He's just discovering the power of words and the power of stories uh, when they're read, when they're read on the page. And um, yeah, so it's, I saying it's a book about books is uh, not far off the map, I think. I think it's interesting you use audio files to tell the story about a book. It's really about books, but it actually <laughs> all works. Um, and you have to hope that Smithy, wherever he might be, unless he's actually dead, um, <laughs> is having a happy time reading, you know, because this might be, you know, a sort of golden year thing that he can do. What's the role of his son? What is the role? Because his son has given him the old iPhone that Smithy then becomes his voice. But what's the role of the son, if any? Um, yes. Um, well, at the end of the book, if you're not um, quite, not, if you're not into solving codes and solving things yourself, if you read on, um, 
you know, that there will be a character that comes up that will explain to you, um, you know, what what happened. So uh, there's there's no need to worry about um, deciphering things. You don't literally have to work things out yourself, but you can if you wish. And, um, you know, yeah, well, you it, can, right? So anyone who really wishes they've been able to be at Bletchley and make a significant <laughs> contribution to the code breaking in World War II, you can see if you read this book how good you are, whether you would have been an asset at Bletchley Park or not. <laughs> I mean, there, you know, I love codes, and you know, you go back. Oh, Barbara, you frozen. Is that what it's called? I think it's the Fornage. And something like that. Anyway, it's a manuscript that nobody has ever successfully cracked, even the best code breakers. And maybe it's Voynich, V-O-Y-N-I-C-H. I should look it up. Um, but it's puzzled people for generations or even possibly centuries and that nobody has ever figured out whether it's a real code, whether it's a useful code, whether it's just nonsense, you know, whatever it might be. It has illustrations, I think, you know, sort of medieval whatever. Um, so obviously there were some really great code makers <laughs> from way back. Look at hieroglyphs, for example. It wasn't until the, one of the great code breakers of all time, Jean-Francois, you know, what is his name? Uh, Champollion. And Champollion was able to decipher hieroglyphs because he got a hold of a stone that had um, the Greek, it had the demotic and then it had Greek. So he was able to work from the Greek down to the hieroglyphs. Oh, yes, there's a fine line between a code and a language. Mm -hmm. I think all languages are is just a code and languages are function. So we have the potential to work out any any different code or any language. We have the potential to learn it. And, right. Um, but it was because he was a code cracker that he was yeah. able to figure out, you know, he was a Napoleonic guy. Um, but if he hadn't been experienced in all that, he might not have been able to do the hard work. Because really, if you think about it, everyone thought hieroglyphs, I mean, they, they were a code for most people because they were so incomprehensible. It took a long time before one could work out that they really were a written language. Mm -hmm. So, you They're know. beautiful, aren't they, hier hieroglyphs? Very hmm? beautiful, beautiful language, beautiful visual language. Yeah, no, they're absolutely gorgeous. And, you know, it's a fascinating study to see how written language developed if you you know, if you really study hieroglyphs and recognize, you know, how they took sounds and then made symbols that replicated the sounds and then on and on it goes. We didn't intuitively come to all this, you know, language is the same thing that developed over millennia. So fascinating stuff. So what are you doing with the Alberton Angels? Are you using still another interesting storytelling? Yeah, kind of. It's not some, um, it's not a regular narrative again. Um, this time it's, um, well, what we're reading is uh, the contents of a safe deposit box. And what's in it is the research material that belongs to a true crime author. Uh, now, she was engaged um, writing a book about uh, historical crime that took place 18 years before. And she was locked in competition with her um, competitor another true crime author, and both were racing each other to uh, a key interviewee in that um, was a baby 18 years earlier in this particular crime. It's a cult. And they were rescued. They were about to be um, uh, sacrificed as the Antichrist, but all was well. You know, the, the baby's parents came to the senses, they left the cult, and all three went back into the care system because the parents were teenagers. 
Um, so now Amanda is um, racing Oliver, her, her nemesis, to this interviewee, this 18-year-old who can now be interviewed as an adult. Um, so we're reading her research, her emails, her WhatsApps, her notes, her written notes, um, her transcriptions of uh, interviews that are transcribed by her assistant, Ellie. And um, we've got to read them and make a decision. Now we can either put them back in the safe deposit box and lock them away, or we can go to the police with them. So that's all I can say about that. No, but that's really fascinating. So basically you're opening up a window into um, research, essentially, because yeah. this is what, you know, this is what historians or whatever it is have to do when they find troves of letters or diaries or other things. And then, wow, that's really fun. Yeah, the reader has to decide, really. So it's, it's another immersive experience, really. I think all three novels are immersive and kind of active, they're like active reading. And uh, I, yeah. I, I'm not done with it yet. It's still still going on. <laughs> well, you know, that, that really is, I mean, in, in a way, they are, they're certainly literary, maybe the first one less so, but the appeal, but certainly this one, and it sounds like that one. Um, it reminded me a little bit of The Name of the Rose, you know, which was a, Oh, it was but you know there's a book where you know I'm a very experienced reader and I have to tell you it was only on the third try that I was able to read the name of the rose I'm a speed reader so if there are any speed bumps in my way I can't read a book I'll never be able to read Dickens I only see him you know in plays and other things because the dialect just knocks me out but I realized that I couldn't read the name of the rose because one, it had footnotes, which I had to ignore. And two, it had kept translating the Latin. And, you know, I would go like that and then I couldn't read it. So once I decided I was going to ignore all the translations, ignore all the footnotes and just read the story, um, which had a lot of nifty stuff in it, I really liked it. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think all of us read differently. Um, and some people really will bond to that kind of thing. And then people like me have a harder time with it. Um, but I think the way that you've done this is really very seamless. I, if I could show you, I can show you, this is a page where you can see that um, you can see the dial, but you can also see voice number one, voice number two, voice number six. So, uh, so we kind of know who we can't hear them. What are the audiobooks? Are there audiobooks of your books? And if so, does it, does the reading eliminate the need for voice one, two, and three? Uh, yes, it does. Yep. Um, they, we have different readers. I think there's four or five um, different uh, voice artists who who read them. And yeah, they've they've done various things to sort of overcome some of the obvious problems with with reading out the exact text over the audiobook. I mean, I've, I've seen a few people on Twitter who've read the audiobook in, or listened to the audiobook in the last couple of days, and um, they've been positive. So I'm not, I don't listen to audiobooks myself, so I'm, I find them very hard to judge. Um, but, you know, the feedback has been good so far. Uh, but it, I guess it's a little bit like a radio play when you've got several different voices reading them out. It might be a, a comparison there. Um, you know, audiobooks, who was I talking to yesterday? We were discussing the fact that audiobooks and podcasting have really brought radio into the 21st century because yeah. essentially it's the, you know, it's the old radio experience. Remember the old BBC talk radio? And we had things like Lux Radio Theater and 
suspense and other things. And, you know, listening to a story is wonderful. It can scare you to death when you are, because you have to, you're imagining it all in your head. I love it. It was part of my childhood and I kind of miss it. So let me say a couple other things that Janet has, Janice has written. One, she says, and we've discussed this, I hope this book is a tribute to the language of late 20th century Londoners. This is the language she's saying is gradually disappearing. These are people whose root, diverse roots combine to create great fortitude as well as humor in the face of hardship and disaster. And their spirit and resilience was integral to how they spoke. So that hasn't disappeared. It's just evolving, right? It, oh, it's evolving for sure. Um, yeah, people, younger, younger people speak differently. And that's, you know, that's good. That's the way it should be. Um, but it's nice to capture an essence of, um, of people who, who from a different era. And I think um, in the UK, certainly, um, we've got Scottish writers and um, some Irish writers really capture their own dialects and their own language mm -hmm. very, very well. I think English writers do that less well. There's a, almost a, there's an RP um, received pronunciation with with writing, and we don't often write in in our own dialects. So it was it made a change actually. It's quite refreshing to write exactly as someone speaks, someone who doesn't speak the Queen's English, and to to recreate their words. Um, I, I really um, <clears throat> excuse me. I really enjoyed that element of writing this book, and you know I hope I hope people enjoy reading it. Well, I'm sure they will. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is you say the transcription, try it again here, Barbara, the transcription key used throughout this text is my adaptation of that devised by David Silverman. Um, what what did he do that helped you? He wrote, he wrote an essay about how to represent on the page um, when you record someone's voice or when you listen to someone's voice. And he wanted to create a key that um, explained when people breathed in and out when they paused, which would be significant if you're trying to record exactly what someone is saying. And, he, and I discovered this essay online. I, I can't even remember now how long ago he wrote it. It's a long time ago. Um, and he, he came up with this key where you could represent certain elements of speech, like in-breaths and out-breaths, pauses and how to indicate how long they're pausing and um, so I thought that's a, the most marvellous way to represent um, Smithy as he speaks and perhaps the pauses will determine you can tell something is awkward for him to talk about by the pauses that he makes mm. and this would be um, this would be a wonderful way to do it so I, I looked at his key and adapted it um, for uh, for this purposes and uh, yeah, you did it extremely well. So we've talked a lot about technique here and all this because we can't actually talk about the story very much, which is frustrating. But let me just remind you that Smithy, uh, 40 years ago, found a copy of a famous children's book by a, I don't know, was she disgraced or just passe? Why was she disgraced? Um, she did a bit of both passe, certainly. She was maligned. She wasn't um, off the moment. She'd been she'd been banned from schools as not good enough to read and not a good Oh, okay. Kid. All right. So not disgraced for bad behavior, but because she's not living up to whatever standards. Yeah, not modern. Yeah, Got it. Not okay. So the copy is margins full of strange markings and annotations. He took it to Miss Isles, his remedial English teacher. Now, she believed that there was a secret code embedded in Miss Twyford's novels, then Miss Isles disappears, 
and now Smithy, out of several years of Durham's file, uh, decides he's going to investigate the mystery that's been haunting him all these years, what happened to Ms. Isles, and um, does so by, um, or tells us what he's doing by recording his thoughts and interviews and so forth. But I like this. It soon becomes clear that Edith Twyford wasn't just a writer of forgotten children's stories. The Twyford called holds a great secret. And so really, this is an adventure. Um, not that different, really, maybe from the famous five, just for <laughs> grownups. But it is an adventure. I mean, there's a real story that pulses through all this. And um, it's how Janice tells it. That's really fascinating, but I don't want any of you to go away thinking this is just like some manual on codes or something. It's, oh, no. <laughs> no, it's an actual novel with, you know, um, a backstory and a, and a hunt and a climax and it all makes sense in the end. So all of that is, you know, wonderful. I love reading it um, and I certainly recommend it. Oh, thank you very much, Barbara. You're welcome. Yeah. Come and join us and see if we have any questions from an audience who may have decided this was just a class on language. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's me. I, you know, it's so hard to talk about um, a crime novel where you can't, it's a lot different than a biography where we know how it ended. True. It's true. It's You have to um, get these sort of tricks where you can talk around things. That's right. <laughs> That's funny. Great. So any questions, Jacob? I, yeah, we had a few. Um, a lot of people excited to read the book, mm. but uh, what Thanks was Smithy's crime? Uh, without spo if that spoils anything, you don't have to say anything. But what was what was Smithy in prison for? Oh, that would be telling. Yeah, that oh, would, it would be. be okay. Boring. All right, we had a few questions about that. Um, so, was uh, Smithy inspired by any individual? Uh, particularly, or they, was it? Is it kind of a stereotypical situation where a guy's been in prison for too long, and uh, kind of still has his old habits and ways of speaking? And was there a, a particular person he was based on? No, um, no. Only his story is one that I was quite familiar with of people who grew up around me, um, and they've come good. You know, they're now right. in their fifties, and they've come good. And um, so I suppose he was inspired by a lot of people. He's very much himself. And I think he's a little bit of me as well. I think I've um, created a bit of a, a, a reverse version of me, perhaps what I would have been had I not had that marvellous introduction to books and reading at a young age. And, and if I'd fallen into the clutches of a gang, um, maybe I would have been a bit more like Smithy. Um, so there's a lot of me in there as well. Well, here's a feminist question. Did those gangs recruit women or was it mostly a male thing? It um, Historically, it's largely male. I think women played a role or played roles supporting their men. Um, I should think uh, these are, I've seen a lot of fiction with women crime bo um, gang bosses and criminal gang bosses. So these days, I, I guess women have um, occupied that space as well. Um, but these, the old fashioned gangs that, that Smithy um, joined at the tail end of, they would be very male. All right. We have a question from Pat Patricia Eastman. Did you do research on any adult literacy learners and their journeys? Um, yes, as far as I could, because I wrote and researched the Twyford Code during lockdown. 
so I couldn't do a whole lot of, of research that I might have done if I'd had access. But I did uh, read a lot about literacy and um, I spoke to a charity, a prison charity um, over Zoom who, who helped teach prisoners to read as best they can. And uh, that they were very informative, telling me a lot of stories about um, the kinds of prisoners that they have who can't read, how they cope with it, how they compensate for not being able to read. So I did a, a lot of research on that level. Um, and it was, I, I think I've always had a fascination with people who can't read because of, it's been such a big part of my life. And I've had a lot of sympathy for people who don't have that. So it, it was sobering nonetheless to discover quite how rife illiteracy is in the 21st century. So yeah, um, I did do a lot of research in answer to your question, Patricia, thank you. Um, yeah, it's, um, it's sobering when you look into it. Here's a footnote, which I found interesting. Not long ago, I got an email from a gentleman who is in fact a prison librarian and asked if we had spare books that we could donate to the prison library because his, you know, they had a lot of voracious readers. And I wrote back and I said, you know, you are aware that most of what we have is, is crime fiction. And is that going to be okay? And he wrote back and said, they're not allowed to have true crime. They are not allowed to let the prisoners read true crime. But as far as thrillers and mysteries go, they just lap them up. Um, and I thought, wow, that's really, you know, that's really interesting. It hadn't occurred to me. So he's coming over in March, Jacob. Some of those um, damaged books that we have and so forth, I thought we might put together, you know, a selection for him. I'm happy to donate to that, you know, to that cause. Because if, in fact, people are going to be rehabilitated at all or emerge from prison and take on any kind of, um, you know, reasonable role, um, reading is a, is a key tool, just as you say. So if we can do anything to encourage that, you know, I think I think it'll be great. But I love that the fact they can't read true crime. I mean, yeah. I think there's some way better ideas about how to be criminals and fiction than yeah. there actually is right. in true crime. So I started thinking maybe never Tom Perry, who was like, who I've often said of Thomas Perry, who's the author of The Butcher's Boy and other things, that if he weren't an author, he'd make a great career criminal. Because his whole mind defaults, you know, to how to to how to do stuff like that. So I don't think that I didn't think that would be a helpful thing to donate to the prison library. But we'll see. Anybody else, Jacob? Uh, yeah, Jill asked, do you think audiobooks may help those who can't read and be able to join, you know, the world of story? Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, that gives um, people who can't read yet yeah, access to all sorts of stories. Um, I mean, they still would need to, you still need to be able to read to get by in life. But yeah, I mean, that's a really good, good point that audiobooks is, is a window to fiction for people with literacy skills. Um, and audiobooks, are, are they accessible in prisons? Um, I, I wouldn't, I don't, I don't doubt know. it. But, you know, as a further thought, you know, and I sort of touched upon this, that audiobooks would be a help in learning how to pronounce words. Um, you know, because there are a lot of words that that don't sound spoken the way they are written. Um, so if you were not an experienced reader, an audiobook could really help you in terms of, you know, improving your speech. Yeah, for sure. All right, that's it. That is. Well, Janice, as always, it's been an absolute pleasure. Is there anything you'd like to say, you know, that um, we haven't covered? 
Um, no, not really. Just to say it's been an absolute pleasure to be here and to be talking about the Twyford Code and, you know, to see you again, Barbara. It's been wonderful. So and thank you very much for listening, everybody. I, uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's really been a joy to have a chance to speak to you. One of the great things about Zoom is that we can, in fact, speak to authors in other countries during the pandemic because nobody was traveling. But even now, it's not it's not terribly likely that Janice will be visiting Scottsdale in the near future. And considering <laughs> our weather, which has been absolutely freezing, um, I don't know that it would be all that. It's probably warmer in London than it's been in Scottsdale. What has your temperature been? It has been minus five, minus six. It's not, it's a little bit warmer today. It's raining today. Hmm. Well, we've been right at freezing for several nights. We have to rush around and cover up our plants, which is so weird. Um, normally, I say to people, you know, in any Eastern or, or whatever climate, you know, come and see us in the winter. But I don't know that that would have been a great move this January. <laughs> anyway, I hope you will come someday. But in the meantime, isn't it great that we have Zoom? I would love to. But yeah, Zoom is also the, the next best thing. It is indeed. So thank you all for watching. Bye, everybody. Bye, Jacob. I'll see you in a little while. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.